Good, good. Okay, so we're in Ephesians 1 this morning. We are in this important little letter that you might not realize how much it's relevant for us, but it's incredibly relevant for us. We have this struggling community in this city called Ephesus. And this community is wanting to seriously follow Jesus, but getting pulled and pushed from all different sides, uh, these competing allegiances that are pressing upon the church to be different than a distinct people. And Paul writes them to them, and he encourages them to be set apart. He encourages them to be saints. He encourages them to actually be who God's called them to be. And here we are, 2022, and we're getting pushed and pulled from different angles. Our allegiances are being... Uh, uh, allegiances for different things are, are pulling the church to be different than a distinct people. And God, like the church in Ephesus, is inviting the church in America, the church in Atlanta, to be set apart, to be distinct, to be not like this world, to actually follow Jesus in a very intentional way. And so there's a lot of parallels between what we see in the church in Ephesus and the church here today. Paul's wanting to remind them of who they are and, and whose they are. And so last week we read about Paul blessing God, if you remember. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blesses with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he lays out these seven blessings that God has given to the church, if you recall last week. And he laid out these seven blessings that he's chosen us before the foundation of the world. That in love he's predestined us for adoption. Talked about you know, that we've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus, that we've been forgiven of our trespasses, that we've received this insight into the mystery of history, which is Jesus. We have uh, obtained an inheritance, and lastly, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So we see this sevenfold blessings that Paul navigated through. And this morning, we're going to read Paul's prayer, his hope is that those blessings wouldn't just be facts that the church knew, but that the church would actually, like, to the core, know those things. You know, there's a difference between knowing something and knowing something. And he wants the church to know at a deep heart level these truths. And to get to that point, no motivational speech is going to get to that point. And so he gets on his knees, and he begins to pray for the church in Ephesus. That's where we're going to be this morning in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, we're going to read. For this reason, in light of these sevenfold blessings, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. We'll stop there for a second. So three years in, Paul has spent several years with this community. He knows the faces and the names and the kids of these people in this community. And he's now left, and he's now actually in jail. But over the years, he stayed in cl close contact with one of the elders of the church in Ephesus. His name is Timothy. That's who we get the letters 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy from. He's, Paul's writing to this guy, Timothy. And so Timothy has kept Paul in the loop of all the things that have been going on in the church in Ephesus since he left. And so he heard about their faith in Jesus. And he'd heard about the love that they have for one another. And you can't have a vertical faith with God without a horizontal uh, interaction and love for one another. And Paul celebrates that he has heard about the vertical faith that they have towards Jesus. And, because it's not either or, you can't not love people and love God, right? It goes hand in hand. And he had heard about their love for one another and he celebrates that. 
And he gives thanks towards that end. You know, sometimes I wonder how, how if we were taught in, in prayer, or if we were taught in prayer, if we were taught to allow prayer to include gratitude. You know, oftentimes we talked about this even in our Bible study this last week, that, that prayer can very easily become this transactional thing. I pray for this thing and God gives it, maybe. And that's kind of the extent of prayer, but it's so much more than that. That leads to a holler, hollow understanding of prayer. And Paul is reminding us as he prays that the importance of gratitude and the importance of praise as a part of prayer. See, gratitude and surrender are good metrics to see if our model for prayer is in alignment with Jesus. If you pray and it doesn't lead you into a deeper heart of gratitude or into a deeper heart of surrender, then maybe we need to question how we're approaching prayer because by design, the fruit of prayer leads to a deeper space of gratitude. It leads to a deeper space of surrender. And Paul, he submits these things. He gives thanks for the church in Ephesus. And then verse 17, it continues. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We'll stop there. It's this beautiful set of words that we hear. It's another one of those run-on sentences that Paul gives. We have two significant run-on sentences happening even in one chapter. But he blesses God for blessing us in Christ. And then he's praying that the blessings that we've received from God would actually hit our hearts. See, Paul knows the limitations we have in our humanity. He knows, again, that you can know something without knowing something. See, Paul knew that, but so did Jesus. When Jesus laid out what it looks like to follow him, he understood that we need spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices to help us know things that we don't know. Let me give you two examples. Uh, silence and solitude, the frequent practice that Jesus used that he moved away into a desolate place, is a reminder to him and a reminder to us of the importance of remembering who God is. When we remove the scaffolding that we try to build up to create our, our own little world, it re- silence and solitude removes that and it reminds us of who God is, it reminds us of his love for us. You know, Sabbath is another one of those examples that reminds you that you are not in control. It reminds you that you are not spinning the plates that you think you're spinning. That reminds you that there's one God and we are not him. And so Sabbath reminds us, silence and solitude reminds us we can know things and not know things. And so Paul is wanting the church to know these blessings. And so he prays. And he prays this wonderful prayer. Remember the context that we're in. Paul is in jail because of the gospel. The gospel has led him into a, a jail cell in Rome. And it's in this place that he enters into this other realm. He's in this dingy cell. We don't know exactly what the, the, the realities were for him. But yet we do know that he turned his eyes away from his circumstances. And he turned towards his father in heaven. Daryl Johnson, one of the commentators I've been reading, he says, His emotionally deep, extravagantly expectant, intellectually rigorous praying takes place in a jail, that in jail he has no bounds because redemption has loosened his shackles and he has set his eyes towards his true location, which is a throne room in heaven. 
He's in Rome in jail, and yet he's able to lift his eyes to the heavenly places. And he lifts his voice to his Father in heaven. His prayer for this church isn't for ease. His prayer for this church isn't for circumstances to get better. His prayer for this church is for their heart to be turned towards God. You know, it's interesting, as, as we read this prayer, it's like he actually believes that he's been adopted. It's like he actually believes that this sevenfold blessing that we just read in Ephesians 1 is actually real. Like, really been chosen. Really been adopted. Really been forgiven. And there's something about knowing something that prevents us from entering into prayer. And there's something about knowing something that allows you to approach God in just a different way. And there's something about the confidence that Paul has here that reminds us of the knowing that Paul had and the knowing that he's wanting the church to have. This understanding that I have a glorious father that is the most stable thing in the universe. And though I'm in jail, though my life is not going the way I thought it would be, I have a confidence in God hearing me though I'm in this place. He understood that. So in this section, um, we read and we see that Paul is, is praying for this church to know the benefits of God and know the realities of God. So he begins with this request, Father of glory. He approaches God with this position, Father, this posture, Father of glory. He prays that, that their hearts would be enlightened. That's his, his introduction to this prayer, that their hearts would be enlightened. Again, he's not praying for circumstances. He's praying for the depth of their heart to have a level of security and a level of stability that this world cannot provide. And he's saying, God, would you allow the hearts of this church in Ephesus to know these things? John Stott goes on and he says, the apostle now brings together three great truths which he wants his readers, through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, to know in mind and experience. They they concern God's call, inheritance, and power. More particularly, he prays that they may know the hope of God's call, the glory, indeed, the glorious riches of his inheritance and the greatness, indeed, the in, indeed, the incomparable greatness of his power. Let's read that here in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above our rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that has been named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in So like Stott said, uh, we hear about the hope of our calling, the glorious inheritance that we've been given and the greatness of his power. We're going to break those down together. The first, the hope of God's call. There's a hope that God's given to us and his call to have us as his own. There's this significant hope, this secure hope that we have in being known by Jesus. There's this security that's been given to us. See, God is at work and will complete what he began. And he has a plan, and that plan might not be your plan. It likely isn't your plan. You likely have a plan for your life, and it's likely not the plan that God has for your life. You might feel that. 
You might feel that in COVID where you had plans that you thought you were going to see. We had plans with Cuba. And our plans are oftentimes, if not always, different than the plans that God has for us. But we can trust them. It's that story in, in Chronicles of Narnia where, where we read about Aslan, that he is not safe, but he's good. And in the same way, we might not be able to uh, control God as if he was a genie. He's far from that. But we can trust that he's good. We have this hope that we have. In light of these sevenfold blessings, we have a hope that's been given to us. And Paul is praying that this security will become an intimate knowledge in the church in Ephesus. Like he legit wants to see the church in Ephesus have this deep, substantial, secure hope. Not a change of circumstance, but a deep understanding of the hope that they have in Jesus. I want them to know this hope and I want them to be anchored in it. Again, it's, it's not about changing circumstances. It's about a security that happens in a knowing in our hearts. So we see that he prays for a hope of their calling. God, let them know that they're secure in you. Let them know, regardless of other circumstances, that they are secure in you. The second thing that he prays is for them to understand the glorious inheritance that God has in us and we have in God. That we have obtained an inheritance. Everybody say inheritance. inheritance. We have been given this inheritance that God has granted to us. We see it in verse 11 that we've obtained an inheritance. We have been called. We have been chosen. We have been adopted. We have been forgiven. We have been redeemed. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been given an inheritance. And Paul is just like, I don't want them to just know it. Because knowing it in our minds isn't going to change you on Tuesday evening when you're confronted with uh, things that are going on in your life. But a knowing in your guts is going to shape you and change you in ways. And Paul knows that. And so he's praying, God will let them know the inheritance that they've been given in Christ. It's this picture that we talked briefly about last week, this picture of the prodigal son where the son goes out and he takes his father's wealth. He says, peace out. Um, Father, you're dead to me. Give me the inheritance now. I want it now. He goes. He squanders it all. He ruins all of his life. And he recognizes that his life is ultimately just done. And he recalls, man, my dad was kind to his servants. Maybe I could, maybe I could be a servant of my dad. I've obviously already disowned my father. Maybe he'll just take me as uh, an employee. And so he comes back and the father's just been waiting for him. And as soon as the father sees the son, he chases after him. He gives, he embraces him, he throws him on the ground, he kisses him, he gives him a, a signet ring, which is a sign of his sonship. He puts a cloak around his son. He throws a party for the son. And we see that all the father has is his. And we can live in such a way that we have not been given the inheritance we've been given. We've been given such an inheritance, an inheritance that can't be stolen, an inheritance that can't be destroyed, an inheritance that's sealed and secure. Paul's saying, let them know it. Let their guts know it to the core, that they would be convinced that nothing in heaven and earth or under the earth or demon or ruler or principality, let nothing be able to thwart them from the confidence they have in knowing that they are yours. And I recall the story that came out in 2008 as the recession hit uh, the world. 
And uh, there were a number, sadly, a number of, of CFOs and CEOs that took their lives in 2008. The number was pretty staggering. And these wealthy individuals built their life on an inheritance, built their life on a, a level of wealth that was pulled out from under them. And when that kind of stuff is pulled out from under you, you have nothing left to live for. See, money and power, you might not ever be a CFO or a CEO. You most likely won't. But money and power is just a counterfeit. It, is a, it provides an empty promise. And when the junk hits the fan, and when the earth shakes we find what our inheritance really is and what we're standing upon. Incomplete joys will never satisfy the human heart and Paul is praying that the church wouldn't get lost in the shuffle of success and begin to believe that their inheritance was in what they possessed. He's wanting to see them anchored in something far greater than what the world offers. So if life's going really well for you or life's going really hard for you, the prayer's the same that you would know the inheritance that God has given to you. And then he goes on. We have the hope of their calling. We have the riches of the inheritance that we've received. So the question is, how can we trust this? How can we trust such a hope? How can we trust such an inheritance? And Paul gives us the answer. He's just praying the gospel. This is not new information. He's just praying the gospel and believing the gospel in such a way that he approaches God in a different way because he actually believes the gospel. So how can we trust this? It's, he then reminds us of the power of God that holds all things together. You are not what's holding your relationship with God together. Your financial security is not the thing that's holding you together. I know some of you feel it. I know with inflation and everything else has gone on over the last few years, I know some of you feel the pressure of finance in your life in one way or another. And that is not the thing that holds you together. That's not the thing that's going to carry you through. That's not the thing that gives you stability like this can. Not your resume. No, friends, we are not mentioned in the last few verses in Ephesians 1. The thing that is holding us together is not you. You are not mentioned here. The thing that is holding you together is that Jesus is risen from the dead and he is now king above all things. And that can be so like coffee cuppy. You know, like, you, you know what I'm saying. Like, you read it, you go to Lifeway, oh, that's a cool cup, I'll give that to my grandma. And, or maybe she gives it to you, right? And I got grandma, my mom's a grandma, and mom, I love you. But that's, I'm not pointing you out. But the point is that we can, it can be so hollow. This like, Jesus is king. But like, for real, when you look at Ephesians 1, and you begin to see there's a hope that God's given to us. There's an inheritance that God's given to us. And it's because Jesus is risen from the dead. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father, far above everything. And he rules above everything. And he's now the head of the church. And there is nothing that can thwart his power or his plan. And it's that security that knows that we have a hope. It's that security that knows that we have an inheritance, regardless of where the market goes. And there's a confidence and a security that we have that's anchored above our circumstances. That's why Paul's not praying for their circumstances. He's praying that their hearts, that their guts would understand that there is this hope. There's this inheritance. This is our security, the greatness of God's power. I want to read it to you again. I don't want us to miss it. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable, I love the way that he's describing these things, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he 
in history, real time, not just a fairy tale, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's this audacious claim. Again, uh, one of the commentators I read, Daryl Johnson, he said, the crucified and resurrected carpenter now sits on the throne of the universe. And it's that that's security. And it's that that Paul is trying to pray that the church would understand. He uses this term Lord in here. It's this explosive word. It's explosive for, for Jews. Because Lord pointed back to the day when Moses encountered a burning bush. And, and, and Moses asked, who should I say sent me? And he, he had, they had this conversation. He says, the Lord sent you. That's significant. And it's significant not just for a Jew, it's significant for a Roman citizen. There was only one Lord, and it was Caesar. And so Paul is writing, he's saying to Jews, and we're going to get more of this in Ephesians 2, but Jews and Romans, remember that there is one Lord. It's not Caesar, and it's one Lord, and he is Yahweh. And he's redefining who Jesus is and how powerful he is. He's trying to encourage church, the church in that way. That he is the sovereign because he's Yahweh. And we're reminded of that. The Lord is alive. He is risen. He is ascended. See, to be the church in the world is to be the people. And this is hard for us. 2020 revealed what the church really believed. To be the church in the world is to be the people in the world who belong to, swear allegiance to, and obey the Lord of the universe above everything else. That is what it means to be the church. That's why we have to be slightly cautious uh, that politics or affiliations don't compete with Jesus as Lord. That Jesus is the ruler far above all things. You know, if there's two powers which we cannot control, it's death and evil. Like, death is our, our great enemy, right? It keeps us, it limits us. We've felt it even on a personal level. It is the great enemy that destroys us, it appears, and then evil is the same way. We maintain our fallenness. And yet, it is evil and death that Jesus overcame. And he's now far above death and evil. He is resurrected and he has ascended. And he is now far above all these things. Nothing can stand between this hope. Nothing can keep us from this hope. Nothing can keep us from this inheritance because he's risen, because he's ascended. No one prays like Paul. There's this beautiful reminder. You know, guilt will never lead you to pray more. You praying enough? See Paul here? He should, you should be praying like Paul. All of a sudden, it like keeps us from prayer. But when you see the invitation of the gospel, the gospel invites us into a vibrant relationship with God. We kind of see the way that Paul is interacting with God. It motivates us to approach God in a different way. John Stott goes on to say, only God's power can fulfill the expectation which belongs to his call and bring us safely to the riches of the glory of the final inheritance he will give us in heaven. Paul is convinced that God's power is sufficient and he accumulates words to convince us. So he's not praying for their circumstances, but he wants them to know something. 
He wants them to be reminded of something that far outweighs what's in front of them. He says, I pray that you would deeply know the Jesus that defeated death. Like deeply know it to such a way that you can have a confidence in knowing that you have a hope and an inheritance. He prays that you would deeply know the Lord that is seated on the throne. Far above every ruler, including our own in this country, far above all rules, far above all courts, he reigns far above, transcendent. There is no competition. It's not yin-yang. There is one ruler far above everything else. He says, I pray that you would deeply know the power of your, your Lord who has given us the Spirit. Friends, we can function as if we have no hope. Like we can believe it on Sunday, but it's another thing to believe it Thursday afternoon in that meeting. It's another thing to feel it Thursday night. It's another thing to feel it in another day during the week. We have a hope. We have an inheritance. And we, there is power through the risen Jesus that holds us together. See, our faith can be so connected to our circumstances. But that isn't faith. Like, faith isn't believing more in God because our circumstances are going well. The writer of Hebrews would actually say the contrary, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith isn't the result of circumstances. But Paul prays. He prays for them. And it reminds us of our need to pray for each other in this, that, that we are, like the church in Ephesus, struggling. We are like the church in Ephesus, navigating through how to live out faith in a difficult time in history. And we need this prayer too. We need to be reminded of the steady, constant, secure hope that we have in God. We need to be reminded of the great inheritance that we have through Jesus. And we need to be reminded of the depth of the power that holds us together. And as we close, I just want to pray for us. It just feels appropriate to pray that these things would be true in our own hearts, and our own lives. And so I would love to just, before we take communion, I would love to just ask if you feel comfortable, just to posture. We did posture last week, and I think there's something really beautiful about responding bodily. And I would just ask if you just want to open your hands like you're receiving a gift. And I want to pray, and I want you to pray with me that God would do these things in our hearts. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look at this text, we're reminded that we forget the hope that we have, the riches of the glorious inheritance that you have in us and we have in you, the power you've given to us, to all who believe. God, we confess our shortcomings and, oh Lord, our prayer. Would you give us a deeper sense of your hope? Would you give us a more substantial understanding of our inheritance? Would you remind us of the why? That there's a power that you have worked through your son to overcome all things, that we have a steady and secure confidence that transcends the good and bad and ugly of this life. So Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts. Help us to see what we can't see. Breathe life upon us by your spirit. But for those that find their hearts just struggling or weary or heavy laden, God, remind us of your hope, the inheritance we have. Holy Spirit, move among us. 
breathe life upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.